This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Ksenia Melnick talks about her short story collection, Snow in May. Then PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot provides a preview of next week's Book Expo. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. There's not a lot of new stuff on the fiction list this week. Um, Our first new book on the list is at number seven. So books one through six are pretty much as they have been. And number seven is The Kill Switch. Uh, That's by James Rollins, co-writing with Grant Blackwood. Uh, We gave it a starred review in Publishers Weekly, calling it an exceptional military thriller. It's a spinoff from Rollins' Sigma Force series, uh, and it introduces a U.S. Army Ranger named Tucker Wayne and his four-footed partner, a small Belgian shepherd named named Kane. Um, I don't know if this is a thing in thrillers, but I've been seeing it actually a lot in romantic suspense. And uh, uh, there's there's like a lot of interest in canine teams and uh, you know, animals helping out in right. the course of the story. So it's interesting to see that on the, the pure thriller side as well. Uh, so the action in this book careens across Russia and into South Africa, where Tucker and Kane must go underground. So Rollins and Blackwood succeed brilliantly at depicting interspecies communication. At number eight, we have The Skin Collector by Jeffrey Deaver. Uh, this is the 11th Lincoln Rhyme novel. He's a quadriplegic forensic expert. Uh, we say that it's outstanding. Uh, in this one, Lincoln joins up with an NYPD detective named Amelia Sachs to track a killer who's also an artist, and his weapon of choice is a tattoo machine that injects poison. So, really? Yeah, boy, it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. Uh. And our review says that Deaver proves himself a grandmaster of the genre as each surprise leads to an even bigger surprise, like a series of reverse Russian nesting dolls. And at number nine, we have Craig Johnson's Any Other Name. Uh, I have a a problem with these titles. It's really hard to search for a book and make sure you're getting the right book. How many books are out there named Kill Switch? Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But Any Other Name is the 11th mystery featuring Walt Longmire. Um, Johnson's been keeping the series going for a while. We say this one is top-notch and that Johnson's hero only gets better both at solving cases and at hooking readers. And finally, further down the list, at number 12, we have Yuen Nesbo's uh, standalone novel. Um, he's best known for his Harry Hole series, but this one uh, is just a, a novel that's uh, set on its own, uh, set at Oslo's Staten Maximum Security Prison, uh, and it's about a man who confessed to two murders but did not actually commit them. Mm. 
And uh, we'd say that uh, there's just an incredibly exciting dynamic, and the author takes the reader on a chilling ride with many unexpected twists. Uh, we gave this one a starred review as well. Uh, the first printing announced for this was 150,000 oh. copies. So clearly the publisher is putting their muscle behind it. And again, it's at number 12 on the hardcover fiction list, so it looks like that's paying off. Yeah, sure. And Nesbo often hits the, uh, the bestseller list whenever he's got a book out. So that sounds great. All right. Well, let's see. Number three, nonfiction. Think like a freak. The authors of Freakonomics offer to retrain your brain. So this is uh, Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. So it lands at number three. We say this best-selling bards of gonzo economics return with this new compendium of nifty, if occasionally shallow, contrarian mind warp. So that's basically our review as the review begins. So that's at number three. Number seven, we have from Jonathan Bush. Uh, he's a CEO and also the uh, nephew and cousin of uh, two former U.S. presidents. It's called Where Does It Hurt? An Entrepreneur's Guide to Fixing Healthcare. Quite topical right now and at number seven. And obviously people are interested in buying it. The Stress Test, Reflections on uh, Financial Crisis, comes in at number eight. Uh, Timothy Geithner, uh, former secretary of the U.S. Department of Treasury, um, talks about his views of, of um, uh, the financial crisis. So, uh, again, something very topical. And uh, finally, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the U.S. Surveillance State. Uh, this is by... Glenn Greenwald, uh, who's the author of With Liberty and Justice for Some, and we say the government's secret spying on just about everyone is laid bare in this exciting, if overwrought, expose. Exciting, but overwrought sounds like pretty much everything that Glenn Greenwald does. I, I admire his mm. principles, but not always his methods. Ah, I see. Uh, and that's at number 11. That's the list. Um, it'll be interesting to see if things pick up a little bit as we move more into the season of big summer books. Right, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ksenia Melnik tells us how a small Russian town became synonymous with both high culture and the gulag. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Ksenia Melnik on the line. She's the author of Snow in May, a collection of short stories set in Magadan, Russia. Ksenia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book, this collection of nine portraits. Mm -hmm. So this is my first book, and uh, as you said, these are linked stories, and um, they're not all set in Magadan, but most all of them have some kind of connection, either through setting or through travel or through recurring characters where um, someone has, say, a relative that has a connection to Magadan. So I always think of it as a kind of emotional center of the book. And the collection spans the second half of the 20th century. Um, the earliest story is set in 1958. Mm. And the the latest story is set in 2012, but the character looks over the length of his whole life there, sort of. So, and I have different narrators of different genders and ages. Some of them are children, some of them are grown-ups or even older people. And one story has some magical elements, but mostly it's just in the realist tradition. 
As you had mentioned, most of these stories, or not, not all of them, are set mm-hmm. in Magadan, uh, which is in northeast Russia. And in, mm-hmm. this is where you were born. You left there when you were in your mid-teens, 14, 15. 15, mm-hmm. 15. So could, could you tell us a little bit about Magadan and what memories the city evokes for you? And just, just give us a, a, a sense of, uh, for our listeners, a sense of place. Take us there. Sure. Well, Magadan is a fascinating place. Um, I am probably a little biased because I did grow up there. Um, and also my my grandfather actually uh, arrived there in the late 50s and worked there for many years as a as a petroleum engineer. And my, my father grew up there. So um, not only do I have memories of Magadan from my own life, but I grew up listening to stories of my grandfather and my father just telling me how it was there uh, back in the day. But so Magadan is very isolated. And in fact, people in Russia, people in Magadan call the rest of Russia as the continent as if Magadan was an island because hmm. for, for many years, I mean, it was just accessible only by plane or for a very, very, very long steamer journey or if you're coming from the European part of Russia by train first and then the steamer and it's just it's just took such a long time to get there um so and in fact it is closer to america it is closer to alaska than to really any major city in russia so it started out as a siberian basically gold rush town in the early 20s and the people were looking for gold there and then it had a very dark um part um, of history between the early 30s and the 50s, where basically it was a portal into this network of gulag camps where prisoners arrived through Magadan port and were transported to various camps in the in the Kalama River region, was which is very just rich in all sorts of natural resources. And they were developing the region, you know, building the roads basically by hand, um, falling down trees, uh, mining for gold, mining for other other elements. And Magadan, the, the old main part of it, is basically built by the prisoners. It also had um, prisoners of war there. Japanese prisoners of war were a big part of it. And really, any nationality, got there, there, they, they were all represented in the, in the Gulag there. Um, but so when, when the Gulag era ended, though, a lot of people and a lot of representatives of the Soviet elite who were in the camps there stayed and so in this weird way, Magadan became a culture capital of the, of the Northeast, if you will. Um, the schools were really good. People just, you know, read almost as, bought as, almost as many books as in Moscow. They had amazing theater productions. So, um, and then starting from the early 60s and 70s, and this is my, my father's youth, um, since they no longer had gulag prisoners to sort of develop the regions they started enticing people with very high salaries and all sorts of benefits to come you know people who were educated in leningrad and moscow and in the european part of russia to come to magadan and stay there and work um they were all very heavily subsidized and so it again experienced just this boom a kind of renaissance where a lot of young specialists came there 
And it was kind of a privileged place to be. Um, college graduates after Moscow and Leningrad, for example, they wanted to come to Magadan and live there. And it is, you know, it is very beautiful there too. Um, and then again in the 90s, um, when the Soviet Union fell apart and the subsidies ended and all the social infrastructure and structure sort of fell apart, there was an exodus of people back to the continent. Um, and at the same time, then the communication with America opened and there were a lot of Americans in Magadan starting charities and doing all sorts of school exchanges and sports teams exchanges and opening churches and opening businesses. Um, so it's it's contrasts and it it it's sort of come its fortune comes in waves. Um so, and of course, my um, my childhood there was very happy. And I think of Magadan; it's beautiful in a non-conventional kind of way, almost like the you know the back streets of Venice that are kind of dilapidated. But mm-hmm. it's it's almost like a beautiful ruin. Parts of it, um, parts of it, of course, has been modernized and rebuilt. So, um, yeah, very interesting place <laughs> to to and, set a book in. And during the time that you said, I mean, from 1958 to 2012, this is just a tremendous amount of change for a place mm-hmm. to go through. Do your do your stories reflect that somewhat? The the social change, the the physical change as buildings come down and go up. Um, yes. So, well, the early story that one that's from 1958 is actually set in Petropavlovsk, Kamchatsky, which is the city on another. Uh, on the Kamchatka Peninsula, but the stories like Closed Fracture and Our Upstairs Neighbor, which are not necessarily set um, in Magadan early on, but the characters talk about it and look over it. And I definitely I try to trace that just because it's, you know, it's it's fascinating and it's nothing that I could have made up myself. And you know, when whenever we traveled, when I was little, we just traveled throughout um, Russia. My my parents would often say to me, "Just don't tell anyone you're from Magadan," because on one hand, it does have this dark history, and people might think, "Oh, well, how did you get there? Were your family in the camps?" You know, even though many innocent people were certainly in the camps, they just they might make assumptions. But at the same time, people did make a lot of money there, and. You just wouldn't want to be a target for any kind of, you know, envy or, or, or theft or anything. And then even when I was in America, some, some Russian immigrants would just, whenever they heard I was from Magadan, everybody, especially the older generation, has heard of it. And they would say that their parents sometimes would say like, oh, if I misbehaved, my mom said she'd send me to Magadan. (laughs) (laughs) So, but for me, I was like, I had a great childhood in Magadan. It's beautiful. You know, I had all sorts of fun there. You did a wonderful Q&A for PW, um, which is up on our site now, uh, mm-hmm. talking about how geography shapes characters. And you also said that reading is very personal, a little like a love affair. So mm-hmm. which readers do you think are most likely to fall in love with your work? Well, I hope all of them do. <laughs> but I have, um, so I have heard from some American readers who are just interested in, in Russia and interested in uh, quote unquote first first hand account what it was like growing up there at least in this very specific place 
But I have also heard from some um, some Russian immigrants who have read the book and who just found a way to connect to it on a different level. And I do use some um, Russian words in my in my book, which I feel like if you can't quite intuit it, you you won't lose anything out necessarily. But there's some double meanings and some play in words, some old proverbs, some sort of references to movies and songs that I think Russians would recognize more readily than Americans. Um, no one from Russia, I mean, there, this book hasn't been translated, so I don't necessarily know how people who still live in Russia would react to it, what they think of it. But of course, you know, everyone has their own story of Russia, so um, this is just mine. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your book. One of the vignettes uh, involves uh, Russian traditional dance. Tell us about the characters involved and tell us about what that means uh, to the narrative. Um, so I think you're talking about Rumba. Um, that is a story where it is set in a, in a ballroom studio in Magadan and um, and it's actually a ballroom studio and a and a chess studio uh, at the same time. But I think the the studio owner Roman Ivanovich wanted to sort of capitalize on his business and kill two birds with one stone. But basically, he is a man who who gets excited about um, a new student of his, Asik. He sees the talent in her, but he also um, I think what originally interested me in these kinds of situations where um, in dance, maybe in, gym, in gymnastics and somewhat, where very young girls play a kind of role when they perform, when they dance, when especially during competitions on stage when they wear their costumes and they put on very, very heavy makeup, um, they look like little women and they play roles that they don't necessarily, they embody a kind of figure that don't, they don't necessarily think of themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, Roman Ivanovich, um, he nurtures her talent. He has a very close relationship with her and he is in denial of a certain, you know, feelings he has for her. And to me, this is a story about, the power of of dance and its ability to sort of transport a life that can be kind of gray, especially in Magadan and in in, in the winter. Um, and this is set in the '90s, so a lot of characters are feeling that strain of post-Soviet crash that um, you know people, re- many people, really, really struggled. Um, but you get transported through dance into this shining, beautiful, bright world, and it's it's surreal. It's almost otherworldly. Um, the girl Asik comes from a poor family where she's not the favorite daughter, and she is testing out her her powers, not necessarily her sexual or any kind of <laughs> beguiling, you know, seducing powers because she's very young, mm-hmm. but just her her powers of testing the the studio, the the rules that are in the studio because she can see she's becoming a favorite of the instructor, and of course the instructor has the ultimate power in this 
kind of a little um, kingdom of his studio, and they come they come at a <laughs> at a climax that is surprising for both of them. I think at the same time. And you emigrated to Alaska as a teenager. So how how did that experience influence your your work, your way of looking back at Magadan and your experiences there? Um, well, in regards to writing this book, um, I didn't just growing up in Magadan. I didn't know much about the Russian history. I think whatever I studied in school sort of came through one ear and went out the other. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't know much about the history of Magadan itself. I wasn't really aware uh, of of the fact that it had such a gulag heritage. There were some monuments around town, but it wasn't really drilled in my head in school. Or even, you know, I think people just wanted to, um, you know, just live their lives and not necessarily um, dwell on that too much. Um, so this this realization and what kind of place I actually came from really happened after I already moved to America and was just talking to my my father and my grandfather and reading all these books and doing all this research. So I was like, what? (laughs) This was my hometown? I had no idea. Um, So I think that in a way made me turn back and just learn more about Russia. And I feel like, um, I think many writers feel this way that they need a certain distance, a certain separation to feel um, kind of a yearning to write about a place. Um, and I even already starting to feel that way about Alaska and New York now that I don't live there. So so with Magadan and with Russia in general, it was such a strong pool because I was now separated from that. And I, I just had all these childhood memories and, and it was had this emotional coloring um, and I was very eager to write about that. And I left, I feel like I got enough of the Russian culture, um, just stowed away in me that, um, I'm still feel very Russian, so to speak. So as you mentioned, uh, you, you now, uh, have moved around a bit more and you're living in El Paso, Texas. What brought you there? <laughs> well, um, when I when I finished my MFA at NYU in 2010 in New York, I had been living there since since my graduation from college. I um, I moved back to Alaska for a few years, and I met my husband there, who uh, was stationed. Um, he's a captain in the army, and he was stationed in Alaska. And uh, we moved to our next station in Oklahoma, and then we moved to El Paso, Texas. And so we'll be there for a little bit. Um, and it's the exact opposite of Alaska or Magadan, but again, it's on the border with Mexico and I have been exploring a little bit. I have been reading about the history there and it's a fascinating place on its own. Just nowhere that I would have imagined to have gone (laughs) sort of on my own volition. Well, I hope you get uh, some fascinating new experiences as you keep moving from place to place. It sounds like it'll probably influence your work both in where you go and where you leave. Yeah, I mean, I, I love I love traveling. And of course, you need to live in a place at least, I mean, just a little longer to get a sense of it. So I would, ne- I would never imagine myself ending up, ending up in the Southwest for as long as I have. And 
I mean, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I've been kind of forced out of my my new comfort zone that was Alaska or New York. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with Ksenia Melnick. You can find her book Snow in May in stores right now. Ksenia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot tells us what's buzzing in the run-up to Book Expo, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot is here to tell us what to look forward to at Book Expo America, also known as BEA. Hello, Jim. Hello, Hello. Mark. Hello, Rose. Good to be back. Always nice to have you here. So uh, everybody in the office is running around uh, trying desperately to get ready for Book Expo. It's just a week away. Um, what are you looking forward to? Well, uh, for it to be over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it certainly is the biggest week of, uh, uh, of the industry's year, you know, uh, aside from actually selling the books. Um, everybody from booksellers to publishers to agents to the media is out in, in force, and I'm sure we'll expect another 25,000 or so at this year's event. And, you know, it's a place where the industry gets together not only to show the the fall titles to the booksellers, but you know distribution deals are done. You know, talking over with new accounts. It's a lot different than it was years ago when a lot of orders would get written, as I like to say in the trade. Um, but now it's mostly really served as a place, a meeting place, as well as a place to generate a lot of media uh, media for authors. Um, to that tune, I'm sure that there's usually around 200 or so credential media. Um, you know, all the consumer press is there, a lot of TV and radio. And this year, to order to try to drum up more support for consumers, um, they are starting what is called BookCon. Right. So we heard a little bit about that uh, a few weeks ago, but just recap for anyone who's listening who missed that episode. Well, there's been uh, a debate for the last five, six years about how much consumers and regular book buyers should be let into the show. Because as we've said, up till now, it's been largely limited to people who are in the book business. So a couple of years ago, they put their toe in the water, if you will, and let in about two or 3,000 book mm-hmm. buyers, what they called power readers at the time, people they can identify as who really liked books and we might be interested in spending some time there. But this year, they're upping the ante and going in with what they're calling BookCon. It's more of a full press to get more consumers into the show on the last day of the event, which is Saturday, next Saturday, May 31st, I believe. Yep. Um, so and it's to do that, not to get too inside baseball here, but a different division of Reed is taking over promotion for that aspect of BEA. It's called the Reed Pop Guys. And Reed Pop is probably best known for doing things like New York Comic Con. Right. Which draws, you know, upwards of tens of thousands of, of uh attendees. This year they're hoping for about seventy five hundred mm-hmm. uh people to come and as we heard this morning actually I think they're on track to uh to hit that number. So this would, you know, represent, you know, a, a pretty big divergence from what's happening in the past. As I said, the last two years was kind of a a testing of the waters thing but this year they're more into it with 
most of the publishers on board. Yeah. So, so it, it seemed by testing the waters the last two years, we got about 2,000 people in. So they're, I'm assuming they thought it was successful enough to open it up uh, to a full day for, for people. Now, now the, the hall is going to be uh, divided a little bit for uh, BEA and BookCon, correct? Right. What they're doing is about mm, 20%, maybe up to a quarter, will be BookCon. Um, and that won't be open to the trade on the first two days of the show. But on um, day three, it will magically appear, <laughs> and the signage is going to change, and the, cons- the consumers who want to go to BookCon will go to that um, that section of the floor, and they won't be uh, allowed to go into the rest of, of the show. Um, the idea being that the publishers who want to reach the consumers will be in that section, or they can have tables, or they'll have they'll have some presence over there, where they will design their books and some of promotional activities to reach the consumers. You can actually sell books there if you want. I was just going to ask, what is it? What what is the interest in drawing consumers? Is it to create buzz? Is it for them to uh, buy books there? And what what is it or what what is it that uh, they hope consumers get out of it? Well, that's always been sort of the mixed message of getting consumers here because the trade show part of it, as everybody in the trade knows, is really forward looking. Mm-hmm. It's looking right. about the fall and the holiday titles. Um, there's always some feeling that, well, if you get consumers here, they get all excited about these books and we can't sell them these books, what's the point? Right. So now this is a bit of a hybrid. Uh, Cons- uh, publishers are being encouraged to have books on hand that they can sell, but they're also using it as an opportunity to get people revved up towards looking towards the fall. So we'll see how they how the balance plays out this year. I mean, they've been they're very much encouraged the publishers, like we said, to do more stuff to get publisher um, to get consumers involved and excited. There'll be more handouts probably than usual. I'm not sure what the galley situation is going to be because, as everybody knows, in the trade, galleys are handed out to all the book buyers, professional right. book buyers during during the event. Um, we'll have to see. Because even at this late date, as you said, with being a late away, publishers' plans are still evolving, shall we say, about right. how they are going to be using BookCon. Yeah, right. in, in the seven years that I've been going to Book Expo, which I realize it's not a long time, uh, I've I've still seen a lot of change. Like I remember the first couple of years I went, people would just come out with sacks and sacks of free stuff. It wasn't just review copies. It was, you know, games and toys and whatever else the, the publishers felt like giving away. And then as the publishing industry kind of went through its thrashing about uh, in, in the past few years, the number of giveaways really shrank. Um, people were tightening budgets. Budgets and they were also trying to keep tighter control over their books and who got to see those advanced copies before publication. So do you think there's going to be a bit of a reversal of that with more giveaways and more promotion now that the consumers are there directly? I think in terms of the book con aspect of it, yes, you will, because you're quite right. I mean, the cutback on what they've given away has been pretty dramatic, you know, and 
I've been going for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I have not been doing this a long time. <laughs> and it's nothing like it used to be, for better or worse. I mean, sometimes it was a little bit over the top. And then the whole, tra- you know, as we all know, the transition to digital has had, has an impact on that. But, yeah, they're definitely being, like I said, encouraged to give out some swag mm-hmm. for, for the consumers. But also what you're going to see... And it's not that much different than what happens during a traditional BEA. There are going to be lots of authors there. Um, you know, Martin Short. Uh, let's see who else are some of the highlighters there. John Grisham, Amy Poehler, um, Veronica Roth. Um, who else? James Patterson. They're all going to be there. They're all going to be part of author signings. They're all going to be on author stages. They're going to be on panels. Altogether, I mean, there'll be several hundred authors throughout BEA on all three days, and there'll be probably a hundred or so just on the on the BookCon day. So they're really there to try to get the authors, you know, to at least you know meet a little bit of their fans um, and try to get them excited. There'll be readings, there'll be panels, there'll be book signings. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it works. Well, I remember five, six years ago, the, the, the feeling before the show and the feeling in publishing, publishing was one of kind of great pessimism. And then it started to increase to a little more guarded optimism. And then I think last year everyone was optimistic. Do we have a sense of what the feeling of the show is this year before going into it? No, I, well, I think it's a little, I think you're right in your characterization, but I also think BookCon is not so much on a cloud, that cloud over it, but kind of everybody is wondering how exactly it's going to fit in. I, I, the show is pretty much accepted for what it has been by the industry, I think. you right. know, Like we said, you're not going to write a lot of orders, but it's a great place to really, for the industry, needs a place to meet every year. Right. Now, what shape or form that should be, as Rose said, has been evolving ever thus, you know, for seven years, 20 years. Right. But the evolution has certainly speeded up the last few years. So this, uh, the book kind is part of that. And it is a bit, uh, let's face it, I think, to keep the show viable. I mean, to their, um, to their credit, Reed, which runs it, is always looking for the next best way to keep publishers and booksellers and wholesalers and the trade interested in this. So this is obviously is being done in association with their publishing partners, for the most part, who have you know, signed off on this. Right. And we'll, we'll see how firmly they back it. It's just interesting that in a in a sort of brave new digital era, it's still so important to see people face to face, both on the business side of things where, as you said, all these deals get made and, and people just have an opportunity to meet every year, but also for consumers that they want to come and, you know, shake hands with an author, get an autograph from an author, see an author on a panel. You wouldn't think it would be so different from watching a video of an author on a panel, but it really is. Oh, I think absolutely. And as you said, from both... Uh the tray meeting, you know, contacts. There's nothing like, you know, talking people face to face. And then just getting excited from a consumer vantage point to seeing, well, you know, I didn't know John Grisham was that short or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, and it's nice. I mean, you can meet, I'm so sure some of these authors are heroes to a lot of people and just sure. to have the the opportunity to maybe get some autograph by them or to uh, listen to something on a panel live and in person is, you know, a treat. Great. 
Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming by and giving us that preview. I, I know my appetite has been whetted. So. Well, that's the idea. <laughs> Jim, I'll be seeing you on the floor. Yes, yes, see you on the floor, <laughs> both of you. Absolutely. And next week, um, Mark and I are both going to be at Book Expo, and then we're going to come back here to record the radio show so you can look forward to our own report of exactly how everything's going. And I'm sure it'll be straight to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks right. a lot, Jim. Uh, Thanks thank again. You, Jim. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 